This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Luca Ancheschi, and I will be your host for today's podcast in NBN Central Asia Studies. I'm delighted to have on the show today uh, Dorjan Kasenova, who is the author of this fantastic book just came up, came out with Stanford University Press, and the book is called Atomics, Atomics Tape, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Dorjan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Luca. Such a pleasure to be uh, on this podcast. Uh, Dorjan, uh, first of all, this is a fantastic book. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it, it is a book that, uh, you know, as we're going to discuss today, uh, can be read uh, at different level. But I think that in this case was also written at different level. I mean, there is a part of your personal life here. There is a part of your research life here. Um, so the first question which I'd like to ask you is that, tell us a little bit more how you approached, given also your family background, this book from an author's perspective. Uh, Luca, this is a fantastic question. And I should admit that it was... Um, it was a struggle and a journey. Uh, I had to put a lot of effort into consciously moving away from dry academic writing. <laughs> so initially, this book was conceived as, a, you know, as a, maybe a more dry IR text. I, I, I was planning to uh, to check how the theories and models we have in our field on why countries decide to build a bomb or decide to give up a bomb, how they can be applicable to Kazakhstan. But then the more I researched the topic, the more I wanted to expand it, um, the more I wanted to focus on, on people. And I also hoped that this book can be read you know, by more than 10 academics from my field. And and so this very long journey started on trying to almost break my own habits, right? And and I had to um, attend many courses on creative nonfiction writing. I would go to the conferences. And and so that was a real effort in terms of just uh, get to this uh, type of writing to give myself permission to write in this way. Um, In terms of the combination of my own 
personal background and research interests, um, just for the, your listeners to know, I'm, of course, originally from Kazakhstan, and my father was a foreign policy advisor to the government of Kazakhstan in the early 90s when they were uh, deciding the fate of the Soviet nuclear inheritance, and that was part of his portfolio. Uh, my father passed away young, and I think it meant a lot to me professionally and on a personal level to follow his footsteps. So I have both this very personal connection to the topic, but also I was exposed uh, as, as a young person to some of the discussions and some of the challenges that Kazakhstan faced. So it, it almost felt as though it was my responsibility to write this book, but also it was my hope to write it in a way that would give it a wider audience so that the story of Kazakhstan could be better known, um, both outside of Kazakhstan, but also within Kazakhstan. And the Tokshan, I mean, if the book is not written, you know, as you were saying, as an academic book, it certainly is researched as one. Can you, I mean, the research component here is it's outstanding. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what did you do to get all of this information? I mean, we got local archives, state archives, diaries of people who had... Uh, roles to play in those negotiations. I mean, it, it is fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about this. So, you know, even though I wanted to write it in an accessible way, I wanted to remain, um, I, I wanted for the book to have scholarly quality, right? Uh, and again, it was a challenge because it's a rather long period of time that I'm covering in my book, starting from the late uh, 1940s and into today. Um, and for me, it was important to make sure that I use <laughs> all available avenues and read and find uh, and knock on all the doors possible in order to get as much data um, as was <laughs> possible. Um, so some of the main um, resources that I used were archival documents, uh, both in Kazakhstan, in some uh, central archives, such as the archive of the president of Kazakhstan, but also regional ones. I went to Semipalatinsk, uh, now called Simei, and worked there. Um, I also worked in other additional archives in Kazakhstan, for example, at the Academy of Sciences. And, 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 so, and so I've covered everything I could uh, on the ground in Kazakhstan. I could understand my limitations. I could feel that not all the documents were available, um, but I, I, I did everything I could to, to read through uh, whatever was available. In the U.S., again, the presidential archives are very important, again, with certain limitations because um, there is the declassification process that is still ongoing. But I would be just persistent, you know, filing those mandatory review requests. And, and sometimes you would file it, for example, I don't know, in 2012, and then five, five years later, you receive response and you get five new pages of archival documents and with um, three-fourths of the document are blocked out in black because this information is still sensitive for national security reasons. So it was a constant 
search <laughs> effort and and that's why it took me 15 years because the I, I I was just trying yeah to 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 cover as much ground as I could um, the interviews were also extremely important uh, the interviews with the participants of the events that I've described and that was one of the most inspiring parts of my journey you know to talk to people who um, who contributed to the diplomatic efforts for example that I describe or to the denuclearization projects um, and that was fascinating to hear them and also to observe how certain, narratives, you know, personal narratives, how uh, with the um, passage of time, they might become a little bit idealized, right? And, and, and again, as a, as a scholar, I, I tried to counter-check them with, um, with the material from the actual period that I was describing. For example, <laughs> interviewing a, a former diplomat, but then also checking what this diplomat wrote back in 1992, for example. And, uh, and again, that was a fascinating uh, process. Uh, Dr. John, I'd like to ask you one more small question about the interviews. I mean, what kind of access did you have in the Kazakhstani policy community? Were people happy to talk with you about? I mean, these are pretty sensitive issues. I mean, you mentioned the, the American side of, the, of this problem. What about... The, the information you can get from people uh, originally from Kazakhstan and working in the Nazarbayev regime? I um, I was extremely lucky that I had extremely good access to who I consider to be the most important person on the Kazakh side to my story. And... Um, uh, and that is Tuligen Zhukev. He was Nazarbayev's right hand uh, during those early 90s. And he was the chief person on the Kazakh side for the nuclear-related uh, nuclear negotiations. And, and so through him, I really had a fantastic glimpse into some of the details that might not have been available in the archives. So, you know, I'm extremely grateful to him that he was generous with uh, his time. And, and it's interesting because on the U.S. side, the key person was the first U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan, Bill Courtney. And equally to him, I had um, unprecedented I mean, he was just also extremely generous. So um, in that sense, I was lucky that two key people were available to be interviewed throughout the years on multiple occasions uh, for, for many hours. I, I should uh, admit that, um, and then again, you know, on the Kazakh side, um, I had interviews with a former officials who work directly on nuclear uh, relevant issues and um, and that was extremely helpful. I do want to acknowledge that um, unfortunately the political culture right and the research culture in the United States and in Kazakhstan are very different. Uh, you as a scholar yourself you probably noticed it that in Kazakhstan, 
many um, many policy decisions they're not personalized right they would be described as Kazakhstan decided or um, the decision was taken there is much more emphasis much less emphasis on the actual people and the only person you know or most of the time if it's uh, attributed to one person it would be the former first president of Kazakhstan, Azarbaev. And, um, and of course, you know, in that sense, I think we still struggle within Kazakhstan with the um, inability or sometimes reservations of talking to scholars as openly as, for example, the U.S. Uh, former and current policymakers and diplomats could. But nonetheless, um, um, I did have some fantastic interviews in Kazakhstan as well with some of the key people. And then I also don't want Luca f- to focus only on, you know, on the high-level elite interviews. For me, it's almost as though it was even more important to interview people on the ground in Kazakhstan, those who were, for example, living in the region and who are survivors of Soviet nuclear tests or people who are at the kind of mid-level, right? The the project implementers, uh, the scientists, uh, technical experts who worked on uh, nuclear-relevant projects. Well, you explicitly mentioned um, both um, Bill Courtney and Zhukayev in, in your in the acknowledgement of the book, and and I think that it's it's important that uh, by talking with these people, this becomes very much a book about well, not all, but particularly about the early nineties. I mean, I think that you captured the zeitgeist of the early nineties, or you know. The de-Sovietization and you know the very early years of the Nazarbayev era fantastically. The, the, I mean, for someone like me, this is is really revealing because uh, there are not there are not many publications on that particular on the particular. So this is not just a book about the bomb, as you were saying. It is a book about how Kazakhstan became a state. If you nation building, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about this dimension that uh, we just identified now is important? I, you know, and I, even though I, I told myself I'm I'm focusing on the nuclear aspect and I couldn't even bring some other aspects relevant to, for example, uh, what was happening in Kazakhstan with biological weapons testing and so on. And there were so many things that I just couldn't fit into the book. But what I wanted to do is to put the nuclear component into a broader context of Kazakhstan's nation building. Um, and, and that's why you have all... Uh, that's because I think the nuclear um, component was so it was like a litmus test also for how Kazakhstan wanted to be viewed as a new state, how it interacted right with one of the most important uh, powers, the United States. And so I think through that lens, there is a lot that can be glimpsed about. Kazakhstan of the early 90s. Uh, And now I want to admit something to you. Researching and writing about the early 90s 
made me really, it was bittersweet, you know. It made me nostalgic for that time. And I'll explain why uh, for, you know, for those who know Kazakh politics well, who follow it, uh, they would notice almost a different quality to the statemanship in Kazakhstan in those early days, um, including President Nazarbayev. You know, I felt a sense of pride for how he negotiated or how people around him carried themselves and how how really the interests of the state were so, <laughs> so important and... Um, it's almost as though it was the golden era of uh, Kazakh policymaking in that sense, and um, and 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 I know you know with the current political situation in Kazakhstan and with the with the criticism and disillusionment with the first president. As a scholar, I worry, for example, that. We will forget those early years. I hope we won't go into another extreme. But again, as I, uh, I would just repeat myself by saying there is something so noble and wonderful about those early days of uh, Kazakhstan's nation building. I, I'm really proud of the people who, who were present at the birth of our state. Well, one thing which emerges from the book pretty clearly is that the Western interlocutors of Nazarbayev, they all, they all thought that he was a brilliant policymaker back then. So certainly it could not have been the golden age of Kazakhstan, but it was the golden age of Nazarbayev in that sense. Uh, and, and not only him, you know, uh, and again, I think, you know, obviously he was the key decision maker, but uh, there were some other really brilliant people um you know, for example, nobody talks nowadays about the vice president of Kazakhstan, Erika Sanbay, for example. And, and there were some really um, wonderful people um, at the top of their professions. And um, yes, so it's not only about him, uh, it's also about the others. But um, you're right, you know, the Western uh, policymakers respected respect Nazarbayev uh, uh, very much uh, during that period. And, and, yeah, I just want to put on record that I would be of the same opinion with them. No, there, there is certainly something, you know, a lot to say about the, these people being product of the Soviet system that ended up being so well respected by Colleagues who were on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So you know, it is it is very. That's why you know I I, I thought that uh, it captures very 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 well the zeitgeist all that time. Uh, Dokjan, let's let's just move a little bit now to the grassroots level. I mean, the book starts with this great description of the polygon and all the the Soviet nuclear uh, expert uh, experiments in semiparting semi now. And then you close the book by going back to the atomic step, looking at what happened after the thing. This, as you were saying before, is a particularly important dimension to what you wrote. Can you tell us a little bit more about these stories, not just in the way in which you told them, but also in the way in which you were told these stories by the people on the field? So again, for the benefit of the listeners, I'll, I'll give a bit of a background. Um, the Soviet military 
tested nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan uh, during the period of 40 years with exceptionally harmful consequences for the health of the people and the environment. And while initially I wasn't planning to include the Soviet period into my book, um, uh, as I've mentioned, you know, my book evolved. And and when I decided to, to write that part out as well, that was emotionally the hardest um, part of my book to write. Uh, I resisted going to the rural areas right next to the former nuclear testing site until I couldn't delay it any longer. So, you know, first I, I've learned everything I could from the... Um, uh, uh, from the documents that were available, including the diaries that you mentioned of the military who were kind of on the other side of the story doing those experiments and who were also going through the hardships of their own. So I I did all the research I could. I did meet uh, survivors of nuclear tests at different venues. I did visit the main city of Semipalatinsk, now Semi, on many occasions, but I just, for a long time, I, I couldn't bring myself to go to the rural areas for two reasons. Um, the first reason was that I was just simply afraid to face it. Um, it's one thing to, to read about it. It's really different when you go there. The second reason is that I know that these people are tired by now, um, you know, scientists come, take samples of their blood and write their scientific articles and then, you know, but nothing happens for the, for the people there. And, and, but obviously I knew that I, I could not write my book without going and meeting them. The first trips were devastating. I, I just, I, I, I couldn't manage. <laughs> I, um, I was very sad, but more than sad, I was angry, you know, and just to give a glimpse to your audience. Um, so, you know, in general, rural areas in Kazakhstan struggle quite a bit, but it's, it's you know, in, in that area, they have this extra dimension of having lived, uh, their families having lived through uh, nuclear tests, and now it's the third and the fourth generations. People who already were born after the tests were uh, ended, you know, they still uh, get very sick. You know, I've met children with missing fingers or with extra fingers and and so it's really hard but what i want to to mention is the the what struck me is the the way they told their stories um there was never they never told them in a, in a very dramatic way and and i think maybe it's something cultural you know for kazakhs uh, this uh resilience and uh maybe not too outward Uh, expression of the pain and so they would be very calm when they would be telling the stories so that's one of my uh, main observations and the second observation which I think is very important and that that I'm trying to convey in the book is that it's so important for them not to be defined just by the nuclear legacy it's a very um, 
important region culturally and historically for Kazakhstan and 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 I think what they you know what they also seek is respect and understanding of their complex story right that uh, we shouldn't let the nuclear story define the entire existence and yeah I can about this I can talk forever this this has been just so important for me for so many reasons and I, I consider it a privilege that I was able to meet these families and that they shared their stories I mean the one thing which uh, I mean that, that I like to discuss I mean I don't really want to go into too much detail in the book because it's so enjoyable that the listeners will actually uh, appreciate very much without us, you know, like going... Disclosing. disclosing. <laughs> I don't want to spoiler it, Tokshan, but there is one thing which I think is particularly important. And, uh, I mean, there was this article, I think it was on, on, on Foreign Affairs, uh, about uh, well, Alex Cooley talking about uh, having now post-America Central Asia after the, the withdrawal mm-hmm. from Afghanistan. And I think that your book does one thing uh, which is offering an incredibly detailed snap, snapshot about a time in which the United States mattered very much in Central Asia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, this is one which actually your sister told me once, you know, when I was working at Kinet. <laughs> she told me, you know, like in the 1990s, people really valued the states in Central Asia. And I think that your book does a wonderful job in describing that specific feeling uh, can you just elaborate a little bit more? I mean, not only about how you see that now, but also what kind of uh, features we lost by having this, uh, America now disengage with the region. And again, you know, similarly as with Kazakh policymaking of, of that period, I'm equally nostalgic for Kazakh-U.S. relationship of the time. Um the United States was probably the key player uh, for for Kazakhstan in terms of feeling as secure as it could in its new statehood. I think you know the Kazakh leadership really looked to the United States in terms of support beyond the narrow issues of nuclear, whatever. There was really this. Um, I, I don't know, almost idealistic on both sides, uh, feeling and excitement uh, of building a relationship with, the, you know, a former Soviet Republic, right, and the, uh, and the United States. Um, it's interesting that the U.S. diplomats who worked uh, with and in Kazakhstan at the time, they would always underscore the difference in dynamics in its relationship with Kazakhstan compared to its relationship with Russia. Uh, And they would always note how welcome they felt and how there was no this psychological Hanover, right? There was no um, inferiority complex, if I may say so Mm -hmm. myself. Um, So, you know, and it, it mattered, you know, that the attitude on both sides 
was that, you know, we are excited to work together. We are excited. You know, the U.S., I, I think, was excited about <laughs> uh, being there and, and uh, playing such an important role. And it was extremely important for Kazakhstan that the United States was there for it on so many levels. And, um, and I should say that I think many on the U.S. side who were so engaged with Kazakhstan during that period in the 90s, I feel that they're a little bit nostalgic also uh, for that period. And um, it, was, it was a critical period for Kazakhstan's nation building for, it, for, you know, for its entry into the international community. And the United States certainly played such an important role. And... You know, if we if we're talking about and now moving on to today, uh, just yesterday, I I, I was um, doing some briefing on the hill, and I was trying to 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 kind of remind, I guess, the the audience that especially now, it's so important for the U.S. to understand that. Kazakhstan is not Russia. <laughs> Kazakhstan is in a very com- complicated geopolitical environment. There are certain things our government cannot, you know, it cannot cross certain lines and so on. But that now it's especially crucial that the U.S. continues to offer its support and its faith in Kazakhstan as a as a sovereign state that is important not only for the region but beyond. Uh, Dr. Jean, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, the reception that the book maybe it's too early but <laughs> in, in, in Kazakhstan because I mean I I read this book in conjunction, I mean not technologically but thematically with the Hungry Stape which is the book that Sarah mm-hmm. Cameron wrote about the, the famine. So obviously, Sarah Cameron endorsed your book, so there is some kind of um, sort of correspondence in the general argument of that you look at Kazakhstan past tragedies to discuss what's going on today. Uh, have people discussed your work in Kazakhstan? Is it being discussed? Do you plan to have translation out in the country? Um, so... There is Kazakh translation in the works right now, which for me is extremely important that, you know, the next edition of Atomic Step will be in Kazakh. So that's underway. And as soon as it's done, I plan to uh, travel to Kazakhstan and do book launches there for both English and the Kazakh version. Uh, and and so that's still ahead. Um because it's only in English now, the, not not many people within Kazakhstan, um, you know, outside of the students who who are on social media and who speak English, uh, know about it. But there is growing interest. I now started getting requests from, for example, the Nazarbayev University uh, to speak to students and and faculty. So I think, um, in in terms of how my fellow countrymen and countrywomen will react uh, to the book itself. Uh, this is something that I still have to see. But so far, in terms of the book itself and that I was writing it and that I published it, I felt 
extreme support from my peers from Kazakhstan. Um, friends are helping me to brainstorm how to promote it. And, um, and I didn't realize how important it would be for the people of my generation as well and to those younger how excited they would be about this book. Um, so um, for me, it's extremely important to to wait and to see what people from within Kazakhstan will say, what they will feel, how how they will react. Well, now it's time for the last question uh, for me, Tokshan. And uh, I mean, we talk about this being a book about many things and the old stories very well told. But there is, I mean, at the core, this is a book that describes the process whereby Kazakhstan relinquished its nuclear arsenal, ultimately, that's what the book. And uh, let our listeners read the book and understand how it went. But I want to ask you a simple question. Do you think, as a non-proliferation scholar, as a Kazakhstani uh, author, do you think that that was the right decision to make for Kazakhstan in the 1990s? In the 1990s? It was the only possible decision to make, and it was the 100% right decision. We would, be, we would not be a country we are today. Um, it was fundamental to our statehood to make this decision to to invest into other things and to enter the international community on good terms. I'm extremely proud of my country for this. And um, it, it was the only possible decision if we wanted to have a, a country that we do have. Dorjan, thanks a lot for a fantastic interview. Congratulations again on an outstanding achievement. Uh, today, we had on the NBN Central Asian Studies new books, uh, Tokjan Kasenova, who is the author of uh, Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Thank you, Tokjan. Thank you so much, Luca. It was a pleasure.